Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, for all the work you do as a singer and a songwriter. If you'd like to know more about Walter's work, walterparks.com is a great place to go. You can always reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. That's jamesnave.com. Would love to hear from you. What's your story? Where are you in the world? And you can just email me through my website. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Devine Dial, for all the work you do holding this station together, wpvmfm.org. And if you would ever like to join me, For the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session on Saturdays, I'm always there Saturday morning. You can find the link, imaginativestorm.com. The door is always open, and we would love to have you write with us. I work with my collaborative business partner, Allegra Houston, imaginativestorm.com. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show, I have all kinds of guests on this show. I have I have sometimes singer-songwriters. I often have thinkers and people that are explorers and adventurers. And the, the biggest population of creative people I have on this show, for some reason, maybe it's because I'm a poet. I have poets on the show. How about that? And so today I have a poet. She's based out of, of Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. And her name is Dr. G. And the way I... Got to know Dr. G. She was on a Leaf Lit Live show that I produced through Leaf Global Arts. And if you listen to that show, you know some of her work. And if you miss the show, you're going to get to know some of Dr. G's work today. So, Dr. G, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I know that you work as a as a poet, and you also work in the healing world as well. And I know you spend lots of time thinking about the, the power of creativity and the power of poetry. And I've often heard in the poetry community, people say, poetry saved my life. Poetry has healed me. And I would love to start this conversation by having you reflect on that idea of poetry saving lives. I've seen it myself. I know it's true. And I know poetry's helped me quite a bit. How does that work for you and some of the people you've encountered over the time that you've been working in this big, bright, wild world we live in? I would say the same. I would say just more broadening the scope that writing healed me. I lead and heal and offer space. But my understanding of the how, I think, has changed over time. Um, I grew up as an only child in New York City. I had a wild imagination. And I was also the youngest of, of a lot of people. Um, so the person who was closest to me in age was 10 years older than me still. So just everybody was an adult. Um, so you have an only child in, who has a propensity towards hanging out with adults who are really hanging out with a multi-generational family. And I was always listening. And oftentimes my world was not necessarily reflected. And so writing became a space that I was just in conversation. It was just a buddy. At times, it was the people who I met in my dreams who felt very real. They 
seemed just as real as the people who I was encountering in my waking life, but it was an odd thing to talk about. So that's how it became. It became a way to be in communication with somebody. You know, I was an odd child, so people just thought that that was odd. Fast forward later on, as I became more versed in clinical practice, you know, I'm a psychologist by trade, um, I'm a death doula, I'm just a holder of space um, and then a guide for people. I found that the way that people started to speak, particularly about the body and their experience as I felt poetry, it didn't follow the same rules for communication. It wasn't bound in the same way culturally even necessarily. So it really, I often tell people in my healing space, like, you know, the language of the body and the language of spirit and the language of the experience, experience is poetry. Um, and we can allow some of the nuances of like, oh, it needs to look like a Lucille Clifton or it needs to look like an X or Y. No, it, it is, it is vast. It's one of the few literary forms that is very permissive of a lot of mixing and a lot of being in communication with other forms. I didn't realize that in that way until I got older. That's an interesting idea. You you say the language of the body and the language of the spirit is poetry, and I feel the same way. And I have a very rich dream life myself, very colorful, almost multidimensional all, all the time. So the poet shows up in this sensibility of the, the language of the spirit, the language of life, the, the dream life. And then the poet captures a sense of what that is on the page. And then the poet declares, I am a poet. That capturing, the, the relationship between the, and I, I don't even know if the word is capture, the, the relationship between dancing, between the spirit world and the page world, do you experience that? And what is that like for you when you're trying to make that translation arc from one sensibility, large knowing to the page, which is more the form? I don't even think of the page as a form. We're very finite in our ability to express the inexpressible. It almost seems like I'm surprised by it um, when it lands on the page. Um, I'm, I'm called rather than I'm thinking of a situation and how to capture it. It's a lot of waiting. <laughs> it's a lot of waiting to be invited. Being in a dance, at, like in high school, is an awkward age, right? Like, you know, and you're just waiting for someone to dance with you. And it could be a dance of strangers. So you really don't know anybody. But then somebody walks up to you and just says, let's dance. And then the song might be over, you might stop in the middle of it, and they might step on your toes, and then that's the end of it. And so it feels like that kind of thing for me. It comes in my dreams sometimes. It's an encounter um, that I can only get the edge of in my ability to really capture. I ask these questions, and I love to track these kind of ideas because we have people on the show who listen and some of them are interested in continuing with their poetry or their writing. Some of them are just thinking I'd like to begin. Mm -hmm. And so when I ask these questions, it's always a delight to get answers like writing poetry is like going to the dance in high school. You never know who's going to ask you and one might step on your toes and the other one might ask you to dance again. I, I love that. I love that idea. When you 
mentioned earlier about the rich life you led as a only child growing up with many, many generations. Are there some people you remember in that community that still stand out for you that maybe whisper in your ear when you're doing your work? Oh, yeah. My great-grandmother particularly stands out. Um, I mean, my lineage is from um, Trinidad. And what's characteristic of Trinidad is their quick wit. I feel like a lot can be said in seven words or less is really like the thing. Often in metaphor, often these witty statements would be deeply connected with life and how to live your life and how to understand life. Um, and how to relate with others. You could chew on one for a lifetime, really. So when I think about my grandmother, my grandmother would say something at five. I have no idea what it meant. At 10, I might ask questions about it. At 12, I might write about it because it seemed important because she says it often. At 15, I might be telling other people, <laughs> but I don't know what I'm saying, but it seems like a good idea. And then each iteration of it, it just deepens. And then, you know, as I get older, I'm like, oh, I have an experience of it. And I, it just comes to me even after she's passed. And then it becomes mine. I, I memorize it a little bit more. And then I note other connections that may have connected with it. So my grandmother, like, continually with one line, she has taught me and been the impetus of a lot of things that I've written um, a lot of things I've mused on long after she has passed. My godmother is the other person who jumps at me as well. Uh, she was the person who actually was the inspiration for writing and keeping it up as a craft. I mean, she was an English teacher. Um, and at the time, she was just going to grad school for literature. And she would read me students' papers. Um, and I would un only understand a handful of them at six years old. But but I was compelled by the variance of the ways that people could write and how transporting it was. Um, and so when I started writing, you know, she was the person who I often gave my work to. And she was the person who helped me with my craft and just tell me to continue, even though professionally I went down a quote unquote different path. When we think about doing one thing in this culture, the um, industrialized <laughs> culture. Somehow we think about, I have to choose one thing and then do it. Like I have to make a profession and then that's my identity. One of the things I've always liked about poetry, I've always enjoyed the idea that it allows everyone to have it in, in, in their lives. And you can choose whatever you want to choose, do whatever job you please, and you can still have poetry in, in your life, which I know that, that you have, have done with that. How does poetry inform you in respect to your professional life? I know you work in, in, the, in the business of psychology and you have clients and you help these people and then you are a healer as well. How does poetry work there? I wouldn't necessarily tell my clients we're always talking about poetry, but I guess we always are when I invite them to be creative around the narrative they may have around how they should explain X, Y, or Z, even understand a diagnostic experience. 
let me say that's cool. That's one book that you read that from, but you just, you have all these behaviors and experiences. So what other book might you find that in? Could it be a children's book? Could it be a YA? Could it be a horror? Could it be a comedy? Like what can we expand and be curious so that we can allow space for it to move, right? We become fixed and boxed about how we name and understand our experience. And I'm just kind of changing the form. This is a great sonnet to be an ABC poem. Like, oh, that's great. Let's make this a haiku. I know you have 26 lines, but could we have five? Um, you know, it's just an invitation to that empty space, um, that space in between where there is possibility and the form actually dissolves a little bit. And we need the form, our form, our minds, our hearts, the way we hold things to dissolve a little bit in order for there to be communication for something else or the opportunity for something else. And so poetry opens that door to just say, hey, what if you just don't know? It's okay to not know this experience. Can we not know and how would we describe it? And when you propose that to some of the people you work with, how do they respond to it when you invite them to soften, dissolve their hearts, expand their hearts? What what happens? Mm. Sometimes it's just a reiteration of habit. Like people just keep going with the way they have been explaining things. And then and then that's the invitation to laugh. Because um, I'm like, look, you there was an opportunity. And you said you wanted to do something different. Oftentimes people say they want to do something different in good faith. And then they don't. And I'm like, holy crap, look what just happened. <laughs> you just did the same thing. Um, sometimes people don't know. And so even just the laughter of our attachment to habit um, can sometimes loosen up the space. And then we begin to play with another way. Oftentimes they're angry. Sometimes people are like, you know, I don't, I said I wanted to do this, but now that I'm feeling what this might be like, it's scary. When will the next thing pop up arrive, the next opportunity, you know, to be able to explain this or to know, you know, when will I next be in knowing? So it's really, how can I provide a parachute for people or a hammock, really, because um, they still want them to be suspended in the space in between, find actually a sense of relaxation so that the knowing comes for a visit again. It, it always does. <laughs> Sometimes I will mention a similar idea to people I work with, and I often will say to them, you know, your poetic disposition has been keen since you were a little child, and you were born with a poetic disposition, and, and your imaginative abilities were there from the very start. And I sometimes will propose to people, I'll say, well, have you ever thought that your poetic abilities, your disposition might be part of the way our species has learned to, to survive, the way you move through life, the way you encounter beauty and what you do with it. And when I point that out, the, the people get very excited about it. Do you have that same experience? <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've got so many labels for things that I think we get caught up that things should look a certain way we don't see the essence of the thing, right? Like creativity gets a bad rap, you know, it's kind of like you're slacking off, you're not really doing work. Can you do something credible with that? Um, how does that work? You know, we get all these questions that really limit the power of the thing um, that we, we have, we must have if you're here today. Yeah, I often will say to people that I think there's so much creativity in the world. Creativity is actually the primary driver for all 
creation. And what we are talking about when we talk about creativity often is we're actually talking about organization. How, how do we as human beings figure out what we're going to do with this abundance that's all around us? How do we organize it? And some people get confused and they don't know what to do. And others are less confused and they somehow manage to organize something like a wonderful poem that seems to have a great meaning for many people. And also, I just want to add the construct of not doing anything with it. I keep coming back to around the space in between the gap. My training in meditation and teaching it has really taught me that that gap is probably one of the most important things. We, we rush to produce what happens when we stay in the space in between. I just love the play of that. That in and of itself is a dance even before I begin to construct or even listen for the words for a poem. There's a word that you don't hear much. It's ne'er-do-well, which means that somebody doesn't do anything at all. They're a kind of a lazy sort of character wandering around. And I often thought it would be fun to have a, a ne'er-do-wellness week or a ne'er-do-wellness weekend. So everybody comes to the ne'er-do-wellness weekend expecting a schedule and charge a whole lot of money, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the ne'er-do-wellness weekend and they, they show up and they'll say, well, well what now? And you go like, well, here you are. And this is nothing. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> I love the idea of saying you really don't have to do anything with this except just simply be. And then the editing is the doing. But, <laughs> but we're just talking about just getting it out there. We all have that wisdom within us. When the spirit moves you, you actually create something that is meaningful for you or it helps you organize your thoughts, and then perhaps somebody cares to hear it. Which brings me around to your poetry. I was wondering, perhaps, maybe you might have a piece you could read for us today. Let's see if we could find something. I've been really appreciating the works in progress. And, you know, we don't really talk about the journey and how messy something was when it began and that we threw it away or that it's been sitting for six years and now we just picked it back up. So lately I've been really appreciating works in progress. This one is, and just a content warning, this has to do with um, sexual abuse. Belly down, pressed, firmly, like a self-made chastity belt, a cupped hand and matchsticks bound, burning any approach. Preparing for eyes permanently pried open, the blaze of mash, haze of nicotine wafting his body out of his bunk, rolling under mine. Blades switched to my throat, a loose plait, or rescuing his face from drowning in rice and gravy, split pea soup and dumplings, fried fish, or any assortment of nogsim spicy noodle in its smoldering styrofoam bowl. For years until the first bleed rushed me out of that room, accused of playing under the stairs with the neighboring boys. Now I sleep on my back, legs bolstered from behind and spread uncapped. That's a powerful poem that paints a dramatic picture many people have 
unfortunately experienced. I love the way you use the details to paint the image. You said it without saying it there. That's a good example of how you can stay with the simple details like the smoke or the noodles. And over a collage of a few lines, you build out a powerful image. In working with the body and my healing, we're always talking about the thing. We don't think we're talking about a thing because we need to, we have an idea of what it means to talk about a thing, right? And oftentimes talking about it in that way can, can be overwhelming, but there's always a way of gradually approaching the thing, of allowing the space in between to also tell the story of what's happening. People tend to talk about the details around often with an alarming degree of detail and vigilance and brilliance because we're that tuned into actually the situation. I think that's really important to the work to know that we can always gradually approach and to give ourselves credit for that. And the thing I love about details and poetry, and again, people writing poetry out there thinking they'd like to do it, details are available to all of us. I have a pair of shoes on. You are wearing a pair of glasses. You have a glass on your desk. Maybe I have a glass on my desk. You have a car perhaps in your driveway. If you don't have a car, you might have a telephone number to call an Uber, who knows what, but you have all these little details. People forget that those details are available to them. And the creative organizational part of it is how do you put those details together and how do you allow that to happen? And can you trust that when you do that, you are working with your style and that's the only style like that in the world? We have at least six senses to play with. The last space being the one we typically leave off. What's your sense acuity, right? Which one do you tend to hone in on the most or what do you notice that you are really refined in? Wow. These roses are cardinally different, even though they all, I would say, just have rose smell. I've heard the term sense acuity before, but you don't hear it very much. And I love the idea of you suggesting to all of us that we do have that ability. One of the exercises that I have done often in some of the workshop situations I lead for writers, I, and you may have done this too in some of the workshops you've worked in, I ask people to relax, close their eyes, and feel the desk that surrounds them. And usually people are sitting in an environment they are familiar with, like you are sitting at a desk you've probably been at before. So you think you know all about that desk, just like I think I know all about my environment. And yet when I close my eyes, everything changes. And when I touch rather than look, the mathematical aspect of it changes. I, oh my God, I thought it was further <laughs> to that that lamp than it is, or it's closer, or what is that? I have no idea what I'm touching. And then you open your little eyes and you go, oh my gosh, that's my my favorite pen. What, what, what happened? <laughs> that, that ability to allow our senses, sense acuity, I think you said, is just a fantastic, fantastic thing. And it also suggests the way we look at perfection. So if I view the meal, I'm going to sense it a certain way. But if I close my eyes and smell it, 
I'm going to have another sense. What is your relationship to perfection? And I'm leading you with this question by saying that I have come to think that everything in the universe is absolutely perfect, that perfection has already been achieved, and that you and I do not have to worry with that because it's already in place. What we have to do is enjoy the perfection around us, a bit like creativity. It's a different way of looking at it. So how can you achieve something that was achieved in the beginning? Hmm. And you see, we have a, a dog as a friend somewhere. Do you have a, a dog that's coming on the show? Yeah, yeah. She is in the background arranging herself and really talking to somebody. So <laughs> oh, what's her name? Her name is Pema. Perfection in the bark. People hear the dog barking and they wonder, well, who, who's that? What, what's the story of the dogs? Speaking of speaking of family. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Seems like something is awry. That person should not is not an ordinary person, and she was correct. Everything is innately perfect, and also, I think perfection comes from our wanting to have the experience of that perfection. My frustration is always the knowing that there are about 84,000 ways to view the thing and to experience the thing. And so, you know, when something has arisen or I want to describe something, mine is the frustration of knowing that there is another way and how do I relax and allow for another way to arise. I will spin trying to look at it another way and another way. And can I experience this another way? Is there another way? I know there's another way. How can I get to that way? What do I have in place that's blocking that other way? <laughs> the image that's coming to mind now for me is you're building a kaleidoscope. Put this this one in. Now I've got to get this color. Oh, look at that little square. I'll put that in. And, well, that's the oddest shape. Give me a snowflake and I'm going to put it in here. And so there are all these ways. But I think that's a beautiful sense of things when you say, all of these ways are perfect, multiple, multiple, infinite ways to do it. And within every approach, you have perfection because why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> it's also a wonder of who am I speaking to? Who's going to pick up this piece or see it? Are they going to have access to this? I really want them to have access to this. I wonder what perspective they might have or need in order to see this. I'm just curious, what would that be? Maybe I'll play with a different form and I, then I generate something else. Um, and so it becomes generative, I think, my, my perfection as opposed to sense of business sometimes. So here we have the poet, you or me or whomever happens to decide they're going to take a run at this and they're generating from the kaleidoscope of a million infinite images and on it goes. And yet when you're doing that, there's also the possibility of someone hearing it. So you're communicating with the possibility of me maybe reading your work, but we're also possibly communicating out to the consciousness of the world as well. So there's lots of threads going on in this proposition of working within the poetic disposition. We call it magical because we don't understand it. Perhaps within this perfection, there are very rational, invisible threads that go everywhere. 
perhaps that's just a normal part of the infinite details of the universe. It's funny. I feel like this last year and a half, I've heard more people speak about this collective conscious or awareness that it's it's actually present or, you know, some people use the word ancestral or other beings. Even if you don't believe in it, you, you kind of have a hint that there's something else there, viewing, experiencing, speaking. In a lot of my writing, I also aim to show how porous our pursuit of perfection or our um, experience is. Porous in the sense of that there are other eyes and other voices and other rhythms that are also in synchrony experiencing this moment. And how can I also bring in all of those, those perspectives? Um, those are fun and sometimes a cacophony, but necessary because that's a moment for me. And the thing I've always liked about these ideas that we're talking about now, if anyone is willing just to relax a bit and consider them, these ideas are fairly simple and available to everyone. It's not some a miraculous thing that I know that I've been gifted because I happen to have something that you don't have or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it's collective. It's available. It's it's it belongs to to all of us that ability to sense infinity. Some people call that God. Some people call that the divine. It reminds me of a more for me accessible word. Because, you know, once we get into the topic of faith too heavily, like, you know, then there's divisiveness and so on. But just childlike wisdom. We are born innately with this whimsical and open perspective and engagement with the world, right? And that can be described any sort of way. Um, Children are constantly spitting both the isness of an experience, but also in a myriad of language, but lacking experience, quote unquote, uh, life, if you will, because that's how we seem to define experience. So the wisdom comes from allowing ourselves to move and age with withholding that openness and wonder and ability to be with the isness of a thing and experience and so on. So marrying the two and like, oh, that's really how I would love myself to lead life. And I feel like poetry keeps me tethered to that, but also what I want to give and offer to others as well. And I've often spoken with people and they will say to me, oh, I'm I'm 60 years old and I never plan to grow up. And I often will say to those people, look, I hate to break the news to you, you're 60 years old. You did grow up. And they will maybe sometimes continue on by saying, I'm, I'm just going to be a child forever. And I somehow feel obligated to say, why don't you consider being a 60-year-old, fully mature adult with a childlike attitude, with a childlike view of things. So allow the childlike view to carry all the way through till till the end of your life, rather than not growing up, but grow up with that lens within the kaleidoscope. I mean, I can only speak to this American culture because this is the culture I've lived in, or the land I've lived in, I should say, within others. But I do feel that that's not revered. We we want to harvest the, the riches of it, right, and creativity and innovation, right? But we don't want to honor the centrality of it in our ability to evolve as a, as a species. You know, even just this moment of, like, a lot of people are having anxiety around, like, the return of some degree of 
society moving back, things opening up, you have to go back to the place where you're going to do the work and so on, that allows the energy needed to be still, the energy needed to like have access and to allow. And I'm so glad people are feeling encouraged to like, just be like, I write and I'm a writer and therefore I can submit. Submissions have quadrupled because people are using their voice. We are all poets and we need that medium to be able to speak to and challenge what is right now. That's a very good point. People tend to move in the direction of poetry when the culture starts moving in multiple directions as ours has in the last two years. And not only our culture, the whole world, this is not limited to to America. I know that I studied a bit about the Soviet poets back in the days of Stalin when things were really, really rough and people were pushed into corners that they didn't know what to do with. And more and more people wrote poetry. Tighter it got, the more poetry came out. And I think that's what's happening right now. People have decided or have been called to just say something. And they may be doing it using the model that you lifted up in this conversation about, well, I'm just going to write this. I'm not concerned about who reads it. It's just going to come out. And then once it comes out, they look at it and they think, hmm, maybe this is a gift. Maybe I could share this with somebody. Thus the submissions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, who better than artists to go to when things don't seem to make sense around you? These are, these are beings who are always making sense and offering a frame fervescent of nonsense. And of course, the word nonsense is a perfect word to describe the dream state, the imaginative state. We look at it and at first we call it nonsense because it doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, if we allow our imaginations to have their full range, your imagination will make sense of things, put it in some kind of order that fits within your life. And if people could trust their imaginations more, and celebrate what their imaginations are able to do without having the internal critic ride roughshod over the proposition, we would even have more submissions. On that note, do you by chance have another poem I could, we could hear? Sure. You know, these pieces offering to are part of a larger manuscript that I'm working on called Ancestral. This particular series, like many people, started writing about their experience within a global pandemic. And, and for me, race and gender pandemics and environmental pandemics. So this is a part of that spirit series of Pandemic 12, and this is the first. Be like tomato, poison the wealthy, nourishment for the poor. Travel by wind, create your own seed without suitor or dowry alone by the sun of midday. Be like amaranth, the ones that do not wither for 40 days, on its own sustenance, 40 days, kissing the clouds scorched by the sun, burn bright in gold, purple, and red. Offer yourself to the gods. That piece has an ancient sense about it, almost as if it could come from any time in the last 300 years. 
Do you have another one you'd like to read? I challenged myself <laughs> to no avail to write something inspirational to myself. I was laughing with a couple of other poets. It's like we, we always seem to, it starts off with a good intent and then we're, we're very akin to highlight the dark regardless. <laughs> so it ends up that way, maybe. This is inspired also by Edwish Dantecott's work, um, Crick Crack. And within the book, there's a series of questions and one of them being, if we were painters, which landscapes would we paint? Spaciousness rolled on blue-black canvas, so your mark is always light. Have your palette full, hues of nature as guide and Simon. Risk the stroke without guide of pencil, image, or conjurer of another. This is yours. Stare boldly in its eyes and mimic the lines of its locks. Turn it inside out Etch the veins and arteries, make bright the shadows. Let the paint find patterns on your face. Allow what arises first to be enough. For inhale and exhale, inhale and exhale. Laugh at your reflection and bring that to the canvas. Rinse each experience fully from the brush, start anew. There is no mistake, no way. Stroke over and over the same spot till it is blue, black. Trust you will know when to pause, when to highlight, when to highlight, when to high light, to highlight. Know you can paint across time. If you listen, all our mothers sing on tune, vibrating the brush. Now, I'm curious why you think that's dark, because I think that is a very bright <laughs> bit of advice. The line, risk the brush, and then wash the brush and start over again. So universal. Why would you think that's dark? <laughs> I suppose, again, in the line of perfection and in how things should be, I was like, I don't see as many bubbly words. <laughs> well, my ear, Dr. G, I would say the lack of bubbly words is what allowed me to fall into the celebration of permission. That's a permission piece. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the bubbly words get in the way of trust the stroke, trust the brush, and trust the moving hand. We can indeed trust that in no matter, no matter what. Mm -hmm. As you move forward, how are you dealing artistically with all of these changes. Our, our experiences have been so profound and so deep and continue to move us in directions that are unexpected. And as a creative leader, as a poet, what are some of your thoughts on moving forward? I have to admit, I'm, I'm a, also a bit of a skeptic. And so I really encourage um, 
a slow, uh, a snail's pace. I evaluate things years after the thing has been executed to see if it's actually been effective. Has there actually been change? And so I live in the questions and I'm really still living in the questions around looking reflectively of what arose because there was a lot speaking to me throughout the year. Um, a lot from dreams, from, from other spaces I, can, I still can't quite capture, but I need to keep listening. Um, and so these next few years, at least for me, are, are going to be that listening um, even more deeply because there's a lot to be said. And just being scrutiny and being questioned around what we're choosing to do. Are we and have we really taken the opportunity that was given to us to slow down, to actually integrate that into our lives, or are we scared and just reverting back to what was? That's always the edge I think I'm sitting on. Is are we really being in integrity to our highest self? It'll be uncomfortable, and and a, and a longer period of discomfort is actually not a problem. And we can find ways to find comfort and even play in that. It's to really offer people the opportunity to find ways to play in collective with this in-between space, even stretch it a little longer than we're told that it's actually necessary because something happened here in our consciousness. And it has, and it and its manifestation has not come to fruition yet. And so can we still hang with that? Can we create and still continue to imagine? Can we still suspend and wait to see what actually manifests from that space. That's a beautiful way to talk about listening. Can we suspend? Can we wait? Can we give ourselves the permission to have the patience? Also feel the feeling we avoid like a plague. Feel and then feel again. Um, so it's between listening and hearing, like, do you really hear? Do you allow it to like trickle down to your toes kind of hearing? So we have all of the senses listening when we sit quietly and invite the in-between quieter spaces to come and communicate with us. Would that be a fair way to yeah. summarize it? Yeah, yeah. It's really a deepening. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. G, as we close our conversation out, if anyone would like to read your work or get in touch with you, do you have a way for them to do that? And if so, this is a good time to, to tell us. Mm -hmm. um, some work has appeared in the Jack Straw Anthology, which you can find somewhere on the internet, I'm sure. Um, I also write um, not only poetry, but I also write sentences that I tell people um, and in the, the intersection of Buddhism and, and health. And so African Wisdom has just been released and it's an amazing collaboration of Black Buddhist writers um, internationally. Um, so that could be a space to also find some of my writing. And um, follow me at, on Instagram at Gruta Grin and uh, Liminal G are my two handles. Um, and you will find I'm often offering things there as well. All right. Well, thank you ever so much for spending this time with us, Dr. G. I really, really do appreciate it. And thank you. I appreciate being welcomed. And that, my friends, was the poet Dr. G. 
I got to know Dr. G by way of a spoken word poetry salon I host on Zoom called Leaf Lit Live, which is sponsored by Leaf Global Arts. The show happens once every three months or so, and we invite poets to come and discuss the issues of the day as well as reflect on the issues of the day by way of reading their poetry as well as discussing their writing process. So it's a well-organized and yet free-form process that includes conversations and poetry performance. Dr. G was on our last Leaflet Live show, and when I heard her read and heard her speak. I was compelled to invite her to come on this show and continue talking about poetry and the process and the things that happen in between. Of course, the moment you hear me say in between, you may be wondering, well, what exactly does that mean? Is in between silent? Are there things going on in between other things? in an active way that's constantly moving. When Dr. G mentioned in between, I understood it emotionally, and yet now that I think about it, I realize it could mean almost anything. For example, I'm recording this right now. It's early morning, and I can hear in the distance a dog barking. The dog barks, 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 and then stops, and then starts barking again a minute or two later, What's in between the dog barking, the dog not barking, and then the dog barking again? Well, I hear the wind. I hear some water in the stream. I hear the morning sounds around me. So that's what's in between. And then, of course, what's in between the morning sounds and the dog coming back again. So there's much that happens in between everything. It's a full proposition. Which brings me around to a poem written by Octavio Paz I would like to read for you. Titled, Between What I See and What I Say. Between what I see and what I say. Between what I say and what I keep silent. Between what I keep silent and what I dream. Between what I dream and what I forget. Poetry. It slips between yes and no says what I keep silent, keeps silent what I say, dreams what I forget. It is not speech. It is an act. It is an act of speech. Poetry speaks and listens. It is real. And as soon as I say it is real, it vanishes. Is it then more real? Tangible idea, intangible word. Poetry comes and goes between what is and what is not. It weaves and unweaves reflections. Poetry scatters eyes on a page, scatters words on our eyes. Eyes speak, words look, looks think. To hear thoughts, See what I say, touch the body of an idea. Eyes close, the words open. And that was Between What I See and What I Say, a poem written by Octavio Paz in 1976. So if you follow along with the idea of the in-between actually being a very busy place with room for all kinds of 
action, like your poetry, which certainly has, I imagine, some in-between involved. So when we talk about this idea of in-between, as Dr. G and I did, maybe we're talking about making room or being able to fill up the space as much as we are talking about what happens between when the dog barks, the dog goes silent, and the dog barks again. There's lots and lots of stuff going on, and we are all perhaps in between all the time. We are right in the middle of it. So when you think about your own creative process, which is really everything you do, which suggests that our in-betweens have all kinds of room for us to play, to imagine, to exist in. Of course, the biggest in-between we all have in common is the day we're born and the day we die. What you do with the time between those two dates is what makes up your life. And while it's an obvious point, your birth date and your death date, and what's in between making up your life, it's still a rather compelling proposition because you do have some choices about what you put in that time frame between those two dates. Some people write poetry like Dr. G. And some people are drawn to allowing themselves to expand more and more in that poetic direction. It's not necessary. Everybody's life in many ways is poetic just by its nature. You breathe and you enjoy and you feel the hot air or the cool air on your skin. You, you get joy when somebody gives you a gift or you're thrilled when you have a, a moment of silence to reflect on your day or a moment of togetherness when you're with somebody you love and, and you both reflect on your day. So there's much that happens in between. And I am of the mind that so much of what goes on can be seen through a, a poetic lens, if you will. I've mentioned before on this show that I'm involved in a writing group that gathers every Saturday morning on Zoom at... 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and our idea every Saturday is to track the relationship between our imaginative minds and our rational minds, letting the imaginative mind lead the dance with the rational mind. So in between, when we start and when we close, we have all of this imaginative brouhaha going on, which ends up with little pieces of writing that we generate within a 10-minute time frame. It's, it's really quite fun, and we call it the imaginative storm. So last Saturday, our writing prompt was a sound file recorded in the Taos Ski Valley about 20 years ago in the deep winter time when a group of musicians got together and played a concert on instruments made out of ice. Of course, the instruments fell out of tune fairly fast because the ice melted. So in between the frozen instruments and the ice melting, you have an out-of-tune concert. And that's what we use for the writing prompt. We played a three-minute sound file of the instruments melting in concert, and everybody jotted words down from the atmosphere of the song or the, the creakiness of the, of the orchestra. And then from there, everybody wrote for 10 minutes using the words they had written on their page as a way of spurring on whatever might emerge within the 10-minute writing. 
So here we have another in between the beginning and the end of the 10 minutes. And what I noticed when I was generating my piece, which I had no idea what would come next, I noticed that in the opening of the piece I did, a sense of the poem Between What I See and What I Say by Octavio Paz came out. So to give you a sense of what can happen between the beginning and the end of a 10-minute time frame, I'd like to read you what I wrote inspired by a bunch of melting ice instruments in the Taos Ski Valley 20 years ago. It does have a bit of the Octavio Paz sensibility about it. I've known the back and forth, that old war between what is and what is not. I've been at night in November above the morning river, the grieving river. I've heard the sounds of irritation, the sounds of found dreams floating from the mountain hollers like easy devotions from some church under a full moon with no red roses. You see red roses in summer, but not in November when long nights grow longer, when long trains roll past soulful forgotten churchyards. You find no frenzy in those churchyards, only memories like ghosts talking to each other, talking to you or me or to the wheelbarrow or the white chickens or the rainwater. Okay, let's get back to the bridge and the November River. When you flip a coin in a river, you must make a wish. Lay to rest those old cattle calls in the grandmother's shade of November nights, in the birth cycle that vibrates a wishful arrival of the longest night of the year, train long, ancient long, forever begging for light, for blood, steel, and the meaning of back and forth above the haunted river that says so little, says so little. And that was the piece I wrote, inspired by an orchestra of melting ice instruments. That might explain why the ending has a haunted river in it. So with that in mind, maybe a good title for the piece might be Above the Haunted River. So we come back to Dr. G's idea of what's in between. In between the 10 minutes emerged this piece I just read for you. Any of us are perfectly capable of filling up 10 minutes with all kinds of imaginative work, so I encourage you to take 10 minutes out of your day and, and play around with something like that. You can use almost anything as a, as a writing prompt, the coffee cup on your table, an old pair of shoes, a new kitten, anything, anything you like. If you would like to play around with any of our writing prompts that we use in our Saturday morning writing group, you're more than welcome to... Visit imaginativestorm.com where you will find a YouTube link that will take you to a whole bunch of writing prompts, including the melting ice instruments. There you'll also find a link to our writing group on Saturday by way of Zoom if you would like to join us. We'd love to have you. And on that note, we have arrived at the end of our time together. Hats off once again to Dr. G for reminding us to think about what falls in between. And as Octavio Paz reminds us, between what I see and what I say, between what I say and what I keep silent, between what I keep silent and what I dream, between what I dream and what I forget, poetry. So it's been a real pleasure to have this poetic time with you and... 
thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you would like to hear more of Walter's music, Devine Dial always does a great job managing the radio station. We could not do this without Devine Dial's help. Thank you, Devine. You can always reach out to me at jamesnave.com. That's my website. You can go there and email me through the contact form. And if you're so moved, we would love to have you in our writing group on Saturday, imaginativestorm.com, if you'd like to be part of that crowd. And finally, thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I appreciate your time and your attention. Thank you ever so much for that. And please do tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.